This vision, chapter 8, comes to Daniel prior to the writing on the wall. So this vision appeared unto me, even unto me, Daniel, as if to be surprised. You'll see that later on. After that which appeared unto me at first. This means that when Daniel was brought into decipher the infamous handwriting on the wall, he had already received this message. And maybe that's why Daniel took no time, like he did with, with Nebuchadnezzar. He took no time, other than he didn't have any personal relationship with him, etc. But he took no time to say, this is the meaning of the writing, and you, Belshazzar, are going to go down. Right? Remember that, that whole thing. And before the night was over, the, Medo per, the Medos, the Mede Empire, had already infiltrated the walls. Well, in this prophecy, Daniel sees himself in the palace or the fortress at a place called Shushan, verse 2, Daniel 8, verse 2. So I saw a vision. Remember how John wrote, whether I was in the spirit or, right? So I'm, I'm in a place, and yet I'm here. So so I saw in a vision, and it came to pass when I saw that I was in Shushan, in the palace, which, in the, which is in the province of Elam, and I saw in a vision, and I was by the river Ulai. Now, the, the amazing thing about this vision is Susa, right, was just a speck on the map at the time of Daniel's writing this prophecy. And this prophecy that he writes now in great detail, is not going to be fulfilled for 200 years. He's seeing himself forward in, in the, as the Spirit of God is giving him this vision, even as John saw of heaven. Now, back to the present. For all this time of the Gentile nations, God remains what I've called the minister of defense, that is, for his people Israel. In all of this time, the kingdoms that are taking place in the world Daniel asking, how long will all of this go on? God is still the minister of defense for his people, verse 3. And then I lifted up mine eyes and saw, and behold, there stood before the river, remember this Uli, a ram which had two horns. And the two horns were high, but one was higher than the other. So one rises above the other. And the higher came up last. That would be the Persians. And I saw the ram pushing westward and northward and southward. Notice what's not there. So that no beast might stand before him. Neither was there any that could deliver out of his hand. But he did according to his will and became great. Verse 5. And as I was considering, behold, an he-goat came from the west on the face of the whole earth. And he didn't touch the ground. It's like he didn't. Like he was barely touching the ground. And the goat had a notable horn. Between his eyes. That's strange, isn't it? And he came to the ram that had two horns, which I had seen standing before the river, and ran into him in a fury of his power. And I saw him come close unto the ram, and he was moved with choler. This is the, the distemper, this anger, grumpy goat against him. And he smote the ram and brake his two horns, and there was no power in the ram to stand before him. But he cast him down to the ground and stamped upon him, and there was none that could deliver the ram out of his hand. Verse 8. Therefore the he-goat waxed very great, and when he was strong, the great horn was broken, 
and for it came up four notable ones toward the four winds of heaven. And there's a lot in here. We're, we're skipping over some of it. Come back on Wednesday night. We'll look at some more detail. Now, just as God had allowed Babylon to rise, he allows them to fall. And the fall of Babylon is predicted and pictured as God sends this first thing, this first creature, this ram. And we already know the second world empire is going to be the Medo-Persian, two-horned, two-armed beast, the Medo-Persian empire. We know, as you skip down to verse 20, that this two-horned ram refers to the two branches of the Medo-Persian empire. And we know from history that the ram accurately represents the Medo-Persian empire, who is portrayed as the guardian spirit of a ram with two sharp horns. Perhaps you've seen something like this, as they might wear a headdress, or maybe you've seen some ancient coin with the same image. The long horns of the ram parallel the arms of Nebuchadnezzar's image. One horn rose to become dominant. Remember how the bear sort of rolled over on his side, one arm and then the other, and the other rises in greater authority than the other. So Persia comes to dominate this empire. And notice the one direction the ram does not turn, doesn't butt. Which, one, which way is it? Doesn't go east, right? That, the east. That's because the Persia is the kingdom's easternmost point. So there, Persia is as far east as they go. They don't go into the Orient and they don't go into India. Okay, so this is the furthest they go and they're facing west and north and south in their conquest. And as the ram advances west, it is from the west that God sends this goat. All right? Now, this goat had a single horn moved with great speed across the land. The goat was moved with collar. Your translation may simply say, fury but it's greedy it's grumpy it's a it's a kingdom that is not satisfied to coexist with any other kingdom we know from verse 21 we'll come to it again but verse 21 just to give you the backdrop of it that this choleric goat represents greece and that the great horn is the great king alexander right so we had the single great King Alexander the Great in the Grecian Empire. It corresponds with a leopard back in chapter 7, which moves swiftly across the land with wings. You may recall, as I mentioned, covering 11,000 miles in just eight months, conquering everything in its path. Now, what's unusual about it is that you have a single horn on this goat. That's the first thing. And then where is it located, right? It sounds like a unicorn or something. So we've got this, this single horn goat, and the horn is located between the eyes. Now the eyes are, so just to give you the imagery of it, the eyes uh, symbolically represent our intelligence, right? You, you've said that sort of thing about a bright, you know, somebody's bright eyes, and you just kind of, you, you have a sense about somebody, and the brightness of their, their mind, their thoughts. So human intelligence, and Alexander the Great is singled out for his great wisdom. That's who this represents. There are five prophecies. I'll give them to you quickly, because I know you, you, you probably stumble over them all as I do. But five prophecies concerning the great king, Alexander, in verse 5, 6, 7, and 8. 
I'll give them to you. First of all is the identity of the king. He comes from the West, a single great king with notable intelligence, world dominance. And remember, this, this is 200 years before anybody's ever heard of Alexander or the Grecian Empire rises to conquer. Then we have the reputation of the king. He moved with collar. He ran with fury as if his feet did not touch the ground. This king is prophesied to gain power swifter than any other king in history. We have the power of this king, the fury of his power because none could withstand. Each Greek soldier is said to be equal to at least 10 of the Medo-Persian soldiers. They were warriors. I mean, this was a conquering well-trained, disciplined army. Then the death of the king. In the height of his strength, he is broken down. With an exhausted army, history tells us, with nothing less left to conquer, at the age of about 33, with nothing left to conquer, he returns home and he dies at the age of 33, from his own drunkenness. And then we have the dividing of the kingdom. Four notable ones emerge after his death as his four great generals divide the kingdom, but never with the same greatness. Those prophecies are before us. My friend, God is in control. He outlined all of this detail about the two empires and finally the Grecian Empire 200 years before it ever came to be. And to confirm this prophecy, God sends an angel, Gabriel, chapter 8. I'm going to skip down to verse 15. We'll come back to those middle verses. But he he sends the angel Gabriel to confirm his message, verse 15. And it came to pass when I, even I, Daniel, same thing he said at verse 1, as if to be surprised, had seen this vision... And sought for the meaning. Then behold, there stood before me as the appearance of a man. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of this river that he was at, Eli, which called and said, Gabriel, make this man to understand the vision. And so he came near me. So, so Gabriel comes near when I stood. And when he came, I was afraid, as you would be. And I fell on my face, as we would. But he says to me, understand, O son of man, for at the time of the end shall be the vision. And you can underline that phrase if you like these sort of things. But it's a phrase that appears the same in every translation. It is specific, the time of the end. Now the angel Gabriel uh, uh, refers to this phrase there in verse 17 at the end of it. It is, a, it is a prophecy. It's how God will draw to a close the end of the time, specifically of the Gentiles. Okay, So we're, we're winding it down as it refers to Israel. But now the Gentiles have risen in great power. And at the end of this time, right, the time of the end, the prophecy comes to a close. It may sound like a small detail, but Scripture never specifies the end of time. Whenever you hear a date, a day, a time, it's going to reference Israel in specific. We live in an age, an era, a time. God is drawing it all to a close as it relates then to his people Israel. 
But of that day and of that hour knoweth no man, not the angels of heaven, but only my Father, Jesus said. But this angel could confirm the times of the end, right? When will arise this master of disguise? Because we're going to see a little horn that rises up and some people will get it confused. And as a result, they think, well, this is all only ever history and nothing future. But verse 9, Daniel chapter 8, verse 9 now. So out of one of them came forth a little horn, which waxed exceeding great toward the south and toward the east and toward the pleasant land. And it waxed great even to the hosts of the heaven, and it cast down some of the hosts and of the stars to the ground and stamped upon them. Again, lot there, we won't get into Yea, he magnified himself even to the prince of the host. By him the daily sacrifice was taken away, and the place of his sanctuary was cast down. And a host was given him against the daily sacrifice by reason of transgression, and it cast down the truth to the ground, and it practiced and prospered. Then I heard one saint speaking to another saint, unto that certain saint which spake, How long shall be the vision concerning the daily sacrifice? How long is all this going to last? And the transgression of the desolation to give both the sanctuary and the host to the trodden down underfoot. And he said unto me, unto 2,000, so we've got, a, we've got a time now. So who is this going to apply to? This is going to be something of Israel. Okay? He says unto me, unto 2,300 days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. So now this is a reference to something going on in Israel. So it came to, well, stop it there. Go down to verse 18 and pick it back up. We read those middles, but verse 18. So the angel appears confirming it now. As he was speaking with me, I was in a deep sleep on my face toward the ground, but he touched me and set me upright. And he said, behold, I will make thee know what shall be in the last end of the indignation. For at the time of the appointed, the end shall be. And the ram, verse 20 which thou sawest, having two horns, Medo-Persian Empire, right? And the rough goat, the choleric goat, the grumpy goat, is the kingdom of Greece. Remember, these are all far into the future when Daniel's writing it, which is why some people say, well, Daniel couldn't have written this as, as, uh, one, as, one, uh, as one, uh, theologian wrote. He said, well, if Daniel didn't write, write this, then maybe Shakespeare didn't write Shakespeare. I mean, you can't, you can't say that because this is Daniel. This is his writing. He's authored it. He signed it. Now, verse 22, that being broken, whereas four stood up for it, four kingdoms shall stand up out of the nation, but not in his power, in his own power. And in the latter time of their kingdom, when the transgressors are come to the full, a king of fierce countenance and understanding dark sentences shall stand up, and his power shall be mighty. But again, not by his own power. And he shall destroy wonderfully and shall prosper and practice and shall destroy. Now, wonderfully doesn't mean like, oh, that's so great. No, it means just amazing terror. And shall prosper and practice and shall destroy the mighty and the holy people. And through his policy also he shall cause craft to prosper in his hand. And he shall magnify himself in his heart. And by peace shall destroy many. So he's got the trust of people. He shall also stand up against the prince of princes. But he shall be broken without hand. So without any weapons being used against him, he's broken down. Now this fierce king, verse 23, 
whose dark countenance is literally the master of disguise or intrigue. There can be no mistake of the focus of his hatred. It's the pleasant land, right? He turns himself against the pleasant land, verse 9. He turns himself against the holy people, verse 24. This is Israel. These are the Jews. And this little horn comes to have power over the land of the Jews. Now, at this point, don't confuse this intriguing little horn with the one that we read about, which I told you was the Antichrist back in chapter 7 and verse 8. In chapter 7, the little horn rises out of the fourth kingdom and is clearly identified as the Antichrist. Where does this horn come from? This little horn arises out of the third kingdom. And it typifies, it's as if God is telling Israel with each new kingdom, it's getting worse, I'm preparing you for worse, I'm preparing you for great tribulation that will come. This one rises out of the third kingdom. It typifies the Antichrist by the most diabolical ruler the world has ever known to date. This little horn rises in power, slowly finally comes to rule with a heavy hand, even changing the civic order and religious laws of the land, initiating much of what the Antichrist will do one day. We've read about that. Back in chapter 7, I could just read it for you. Back in chapter 7, it says, He'll speak with great words against the Most High. He'll wear out the saints. Remember that phrase from last week. And he'll seek to change the times and the laws of the land. And so by this little horn, the master of disguise, the Antichrist is foreshadowed. The focus of this man is hatred toward the Jews to trample them, utterly destroy them. The foreshadowing of such things to come hangs over this same area of the world to this day. It's illustrated through various world leaders drawing closer to the time of the end with each next generation. How long, right, we want to ask ourselves. There have been many in history who have, and as the Lord tarries, who may illustrate the hatred of the Antichrist. But there is one in particular who has fulfilled this prophecy of Daniel. He was the first abomination of desolation and has been the worst of indignation known to date. His name? And no, that's the Christian, that's the Christian Antiochus or Antiochus, however you say it, the fourth. Antiochus or Antiochus Epiphanes, right? Antiochus the fourth of 175 BC. He rose in power. By flattery and deceit, he was not heir to the kingdom. He came in peace, he earned the confidence of the Jews and everyone else in the land, and then plundered the people and the city for his own. He took the title, gave it to himself, by the way, Antiochus, or Antiochus, Antiochus Epiphany. What does that mean? God manifest. That's what he thought of himself. By the Jews, he was known as Antiochus Epimenes, or madman. Historically, we know that his plunder began in 171 B.C. It lasted just under six years. This is all now historical record until the restoration of the temple. By the way, December 25th, 
165 B.C., if you're counting, this is 2,300 days from the time of his initiation to the time of his fall. That's exactly what was prophesied in verse 14. Now, you may know this moment in time as the Festival of Lights, or you've heard it, Hanukkah. That's what this time is, when the fall of Antiochus Epiphany occurs. 2,300 days, just as was prophesied. Before Antiochus was done, he had killed no less than 80,000 Jews sold more than 40,000 Jews into slavery, burned every copy of the Torah that he could find, forbade Jewish religious customs by penalty of horrific death. He desecrated the temple by not just the sacrifice of a pig, but he splattered the blood all around. Now, comparatively, Antiochus IV is called the Jews' Nero, because Nero is the guy that persecuted Christians. So to the Jew, this was the, the Christian sort of form of, of Nero that would come under Roman rule. But the cruelty of this man and all sense only foreshadows the Antichrist who will wreak havoc even greater, such as the world has never seen. God is preparing his people or tragic, tragic things that will one day come in particular for Israel. Now through this little horn, the master of disguise is not only foreshadowed, but also foretold where he would come from, verse 8, from one of the divided kingdoms of Greece. Who would he persecute, verse 9, the pleasant land of Israel? How would he behave, verse 10, verse 11, as he lifts himself up against the God of heaven, right? Epiphanies. God manifest. What he would get away with, verse 12, as his craft would prosper. And for how long he would have his way? 2,300 days. As a type of the Antichrist, there are four comparisons. You can see it in verse 25. I'll give them again to you just quickly. Through his policy, he shall cause craft or craftiness or deceitfulness to prosper in his hand. Revelation 13 tells us that no man might buy or sell except for his approval. So a foreshadowing of, uh, of what is foretold of the Antichrist. He shall magnify himself in his own heart. The Antichrist in Revelation 13 was given unto him a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies and power. By peace he shall destroy many. Revelation 6 tells us the Antichrist is on a white horse of peace, but he rides out on a red horse of war. And he shall stand up against the prince of princes, verse uh, Revelation 13, Antichrist will stand against everything of Christ. So this is foretelling of more of what the Antichrist will be. But for all that was prophesied to mimic the Antichrist, understand that this master of disguise is still foreordained of God. Because when you read the passage again carefully, you will see it. This is a time that has been limited by someone else. Verse 19. He rose in authority, not by his own power, but by another. Verse 22. 
His power and might is not of his own making, verse 24. And in the end, he is broken, but not by man. Remember the lesson that we learned earlier in Daniel, which is summarized by Paul in, in Romans chapter 13. There is a power, or there is no power, but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. And you'll have a lot of questions about that. A lot of frustration about that. And a lot of wondering where it's all going to take us. But there is a God in heaven. And he rules over the affairs of this world. And he will bring to a close that which he has allowed during the time of the Gentiles. This is the message of Daniel, verse 26. And so the vision of the evening and the morning which was told is true. Wherefore, shut thou up the vision, for it shall be for many days. And I, Daniel, fainted and was sick certain days. And afterward I rose up and did the king's business. Remember, he's still serving in Babylon. And I was astonished at the vision, but nobody understood. First of all, Daniel's message is surprising. It says he was astonished. No one could understand it. The vision in particular clearly begins to mesh together God's plan of the end, right? So God's plan for the nations of the world, and it's drawing down to a close, and it's beginning to mesh with what his intentions are for Israel. The time when Christ will return, and he will pick up where he left off with his people. And this plan, the message is sealed, verse 26 the angel tells Daniel to shut it up, right? The vision, keep it. Nobody's going to understand it. It's not going to happen for many days. It was considered a done deal, even though Susa, as I've mentioned, did not really even exist, as, at least as a power, for 200 years. And Antiochus would not be known by the world for another 380 years. This is all prophecy. The New Living Translation says this vision is true. But none of these things are going to happen for a long time. Now it's all history. When God speaks of the kingdoms of the earth, present and future, we know the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord, and he turns it whithersoever he will. Proverbs 21. Well, in the end, Antiochus was stricken by a terrible disease. It caused an unbearable suffering, and his rotting flesh created a terrible stench. That's this great man who thought of himself, God manifest. He died, just as God said in verse 25, without a man lifting his hand against him. Not a human, but by God. And it was sickening to Daniel, verse 27. Daniel's heart was faint and he felt sick, just as you might. In any given season of elections and trauma in the world today. Perhaps it was the indignation that his people would suffer. Perhaps it was the abomination of desolation that would happen in the temple. Or just the thought of how many more years the Gentiles would reign over the house of Israel. Whatever it was that sickened Daniel, understand that God's message of judgment is sure. But no messenger of God ever takes pleasure in seeing the death of the wicked or the judgment that's carried out 
upon the people he loves. There's another message we learned earlier from Daniel's dealing with Nebuchadnezzar. That is the thing that is often most lacking from the people of God when we share the message of Jesus Christ. According to Psalm 34, the Lord is in the presence of a broken heart and saves those who be of a contrite spirit. A broken heart. You might be angry. You might be frustrated. There might be a lot of things that will enter your thoughts and your minds in the days to come. But God is present in the heart that is broken. If we really believe Daniel's message and what this book has to say about those who die without Christ, it would still break our heart, even though we might feel like they deserve it. Just a grumpy old goat. No. Whether you're going into the voting booth or the grocery store or a neighbor's house, be careful about expressing your anger over political matters. But express your confidence in God. He's still in control. He has a purpose and a plan. I don't know what that is. But he is obviously drawing all things to a close. And soon, very soon, the Lord is coming.